Tonight we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 21. And you will note that we are introduced to a new character, even as we were introduced to a new character in chapter 20. This time we meet King Zedekiah. And it's interesting that both of these characters, Pasher in chapter 20 and Zedekiah here in 21, are figures which are projecting the end of the kingdom of Judah. It is as if Jeremiah in the first 19 chapters has surveyed the background which has led up to the crisis, namely the decline through the reign of King Josiah and into Jehoiakim's uh, royal Control And now, with chapter 20, begins to look at the end in its beginning. So, uh, with that in mind, um, we're uh, into a different narrative of the book. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we have no more confessions of Jeremiah. As he noted last week, the last confession or the last complaint or the last lament of the prophets is at the end of chapter 20. That We will not hear that voice of lamentation from Jeremiah again. And I think it is coincident with the fact that he has moved beyond his own self-doubt and self-pity and realizes that now he is in the vortex of the deliberate sovereignty of God to destroy this nation and this people and this temple. Be that as it may, this 21st chapter has a structure of its own, a structure which we can outline. Christina, you may want to get an outline at the back. A structure which we can outline in terms of speech and its direction. The chapter opens with Zedekiah dispatching a delegation or an embassy to Jeremiah, and that embassy or delegation uh, receives Jeremiah's report in verse 3. So verses 1 to 3 are a small unit in themselves. And then you will notice from the right-hand side of the structural outline that the next units are all demarcated with the same uh, phraseology. The delimiter that begins each unit is the phrase, thus says the Lord, and the unit that ends each The phrase that ends each unit is the phrase, declares the Lord. Those are exact parallels in the original Hebrew text so that, uh, once again, we have unit brackets from verses 4 to 7, where Jeremiah addresses the king Zedekiah from verses 8 to 10, where Jeremiah addresses the people. And verses 11 to 14, where Jeremiah addresses the house of the king or the household of the king. All right, the four units then are comprehensive. You will notice that as the king asks for a response from Jeremiah by way of his delegation or his legation, (coughs) Jeremiah declares the word of the Lord to him. And then he declares the word of the Lord to the people in general. 
And finally, he declares the word of the Lord to the household of the king or to the royal courtiers and all those who would have access to the court palace of the king, including those who would be religious leaders, social leaders, economic leaders, cultural leaders, etc., political leaders. In other words, this chapter is providing the word of the Lord to the entire levels of culture and society in Judah and Jerusalem in answer to Zedekiah's request to the prophet Jeremiah. All right, the new character is King Zedekiah, who became king of Judah in Jerusalem in what year? Or what event? Terry, can you associate the event which <clears throat> led to him becoming king? Um, well, His father was killed at Megiddo. His father was killed at Megiddo? No. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Yes, Zedekiah's father was killed at Megiddo. Megiddo. But <clears throat> what brings him to the throne? Who comes to the throne on the death of Josiah, since you brought it up? Can anybody help Terry? Who who becomes king when Josiah dies? Ben? Pardon? That's his father. That's Josiah's father. Who's the son of Josiah? Jehoahaz. Yes. Jehoahaz becomes king, and how long does he last on the throne? Go ahead, Terry. Three months. And what happens next? Who's the next king? Who dethrones him? Terry, who takes him off the throne? Christina? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim replaces him, but who takes, who puts Jehoiakim on the throne and takes Jehoahaz off the throne? Nico. Pharaoh Nico, the Egyptian Pharaoh. All right, so we've got Josiah dead, Nico killed him. We have Jehoahaz on the throne, Nico takes him off. We have Jehoiakim on the throne, uh, Nico puts him on the throne, and who's next? Go ahead, Christina. Jehoiakim is next. And when does that happen? What is the date of the shift between Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim? It's 597. 597. And why did that happen? What's going on? Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the city. Is this the first time Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the city of Jerusalem? Ben? Terry? No? Second time. When was the first time? Go ahead, Ben. 605. Who did he take away in 605?
Okay, so you're learning the Bible. May may I emphasize that you have something to attach to the book of the Bible. What book of the Bible do you have something to attach to? Terry? Go ahead, Ben. No, no. There's a book of the Bible that you can attach this event to. Daniel, because Daniel goes away in 605. So I know this about the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel had been dated in 605 because that's when Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel from Jerusalem in the first siege of Jerusalem, the first of three sieges of Jerusalem. All right, now 597, who did he take away? God, who did he take away? Bible book of the Bible. Who does he take away? Christina, who does he take away? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. All right. I know I have the book of the Bible in Ezekiel. I know this about Ezekiel. I can date Ezekiel to 597 because Nebuchadnezzar takes him captive in 597. I can associate the book with a historical event. I can associate Daniel with an historical event. It's not just, oh, Daniel. Well, I read the book of Daniel for my devotions, but you don't know where it fits. If you don't know where it fits, do you understand what's going on? Same way with Ezekiel. See, you're learning something about the content of the Bible because God inspired it at that time. That's how Daniel gets to Babylon. So he sees his visions. So that he talks to Nebuchadnezzar. So that he talks to Belshazzar. How did he get there? How did these events come to pass? How does Ezekiel get by the river Kibar in Babylon? How does it happen? And how does his visions then come out of that experience of his captivity? You see, the content of the book of the Bible is associated with the historical event that establishes that content. So, Josiah, to Jehoahaz, to Jehoiakim, to Jehoiakin, to whom? Zedekiah. All right. So Zedekiah comes to the throne after Jehoiakim. Was Jehoiakim killed? Is that the reason that Zedekiah becomes king? Jehoiakim died. That's the reason Jehoiakim becomes king. Josiah died. That's the reason Jehoahaz became king. Jehoiakim surrendered. Who else surrendered with him? His mother. Why did they surrender? Pardon? I didn't hear you, Ben. It was a smart thing to do. Uh, it, It was a smart thing to do, but we've also suggested in previous weeks of this study that there may have been another reason, a more eudaimonistic reason, a more altruistic reason. A more benevolent reason on their part. Pardon? Yes, a suggestion that Jehoiakim and his mother may have gone out to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar in order to spare the city, in order to spare the city a total destruction. Possibly. Possibly they did it. And Nebuchadnezzar does spare the city a total destruction. Destruction. All right, so when does Zedekiah become king? What year? 
What is that date of the second invasion? We already said it. When he carries away Ezekiel, what's that date? 597. When does his reign end? Go ahead, Christina. 586. 586. When what happens? When Jerusalem is destroyed and the city collapses. All right. 597 B.C. he becomes king. 586 B.C. his reign ends. He succeeds Jehoiakim. How? He surrenders. What event? The second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, verse 2 of chapter 21 of Jeremiah. Why was this delegation sent to Jeremiah from King Zedekiah? What is going on according to verse 2? Nebuchadnezzar has attacked. He is warring against us right now. Well, is this 597? Let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1. And the first person who gets the verse, would you please read it out for us? 2 Kings 25, verse 1. It came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came, he and all his armies against Jerusalem, kept against it, and built a siege for all armies. All right, now it says the ninth year of the reign of Zedekiah. When did he begin to reign? 597. What's the ninth year of his reign? 588. All right, now, verse 2 of 2 Kings 25. First person to have it, please read it out. What would be the 11th year of Zedekiah? You can put a date on it. 586. Notice that the Bible agrees with the dates that we have assigned for the reigns of the king. That 597 was the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. In his ninth year, the third and final siege of Jerusalem is established by Nebuchadnezzar. 588. And that siege ends. The city collapses and is burned in the 11th year of Zedekiah. 586. Therefore, we can date this embassy of Zedekiah to Jeremiah to what year? 588. Somewhere between 588 and 586. This, therefore, should not be confused with the siege at 597, the second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This embassy is delegated to go to Jeremiah when the final siege is underway in 588 and following. All right, now let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 20. And once again, the first person that has it, if you'll read it out for us, we're going to ask the question, why did this happen? Why did Nebuchadnezzar come against Jerusalem in 588? 2 Kings 24, verse 20. It was because the Lord, uh, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. 
You have no more in your Bible? No. Zedekiah rebelled against the kingdom. Ah, there it is. There's a break there. Now, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So okay. Now, that, that verse should end with verse 20. I mean, your last phrase should end verse 20. It shouldn't begin verse 1 of 25. No, it doesn't. There's a big gap in your study Bible. Okay. All right. Now, uh, what is the reason that Nebuchadnezzar comes in 588, according to that text? Back to you, Ben. What's the, what's the passage say? Because Zedekiah didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with Babylon. He, he did. I, I think you read the word. What did the word say in the text? You read. He rebelled. He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Zedekiah decides that eight years, nine years after he's become king, he's going to throw off the yoke of <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, who had put him on the throne in 597. And so we ask, why does he decide to throw off the yoke of Babylon after nine years of vassalage, after being a, <clears throat> a, a servant or a, a tributary of Nebuchadnezzar? For nine years, what is it that causes him to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar? Now we'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 17. And once again, the first person that has it, would you please read out verses 12 to 15 of Ezekiel 17. So say to this rebellious house, do you not know what things this... What these things mean, say to them, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Then he took a member of the royal family and made a treaty with him, putting him under oath. He also carried away the leading men of the land, that the kingdom would be brought low, unable to rise again, surviving only by keeping this treaty, his treaty. But the king rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt to get horses and a large army. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Will he break the treaty and yet escape? Thank you, Ben. Now back to explaining the meaning of what you've just read. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. Who's the king of Babylon? Ben? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He took its king and princes and brought them to him in Babylon, took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him. Who did he take to Babylon? His, well, the, the mother and his son, right? And what was the name of the son? Joachim? <laughs> no. Is that right? Say it again. Joachim? Not him. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, yes. He took Jehoiakim and his mother, brought them to Babylon, took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him. Who, he, who is this? Um, it is Zedekiah, correct. The successor to Jehoiakim. Okay, then what did, Jehoi, what did Zedekiah do? Verse 15. Rebellious. He, didn't he rebelled. Rebel. Same thing that we heard from Second Kings chapter twenty-five. Correct. He doesn't, he doesn't care that his mom and brother are bad. <laughs> mm, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, not his mom and brother. Okay. Oh, it's a different different part. Yes, yeah, actually, his nephew. 
Okay, um, so uh, we have the same note that we noted in Second Kings, that he rebels against him by doing what? He went to Egypt and tried to get the horses in the army. Why would he do that? Because he can't, he doesn't have, he doesn't have strength. Nebuchadnezzar took enough away that he didn't have strength to rise up from within, so he had to go find help somewhere else. Right? Good, he's looking for an ally. All right, now why would he choose 588? After all, he'd been a servant of Nebuchadnezzar for nine years. Why in 588 does he decide that he's going to throw off Babylon's Susan T and play footsie with Egypt? Because Egypt's rising in power? Not quite. Because Egypt has a new pharaoh. In 589, the pharaoh previous had died. A new pharaoh comes to the throne in Egypt. He's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 44. His name is Hophra or Aprius. And having a shift in uh, <clears throat> dynasty, Zedekiah decides to take advantage of the new guy on the throne in Egypt and to offer his alliance to Egypt and to appeal for troops and horses in support of his uh, friendliness now to the new regime in Egypt. All right, now this event is also referred to in Jeremiah chapter 37. So back to Jeremiah 37, verses 5 and 7. We now know why Nebuchadnezzar comes. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar comes in 588 because he's heard about the treachery of Zedekiah, the betrayal of his covenant, and the fact that he is now making an alliance or attempting to make an alliance with Egypt, which could be a great threat to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in the Levant. Whoever has Jeremiah 37, verse 5, please go ahead and read. <clears throat> Pharaoh's army had marched out of Egypt, and when the Babylonians who were besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. All right, so what happens when Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem? According to that text, according to that text, they withdrew from Jerusalem, the Babylonians did, because they heard about the Egyptians coming. According to the text, Egypt sends an army up to Jerusalem. But the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, lift the siege of Jerusalem, 588 and later, and they uh, turn to face the Egyptians. Now, verse 7. Go ahead, Scott, read verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. So, the army of Pharaoh Hophra comes out of Egypt in response to Zedekiah's request and tries to support the projected coalition that Zedekiah has negotiated with Egypt in order to support him in his rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. And when that army comes up out of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar lifts the siege of Jerusalem, turns to face the Egyptians, and as verse 7 says, they will return to their own land when they meet Nebuchadnezzar coming down on them. So in other words, the appeal to Egypt 
uh, uh, didn't uh, help Zedekiah at all. It backfired because uh, Nebuchadnezzar was simply too strong. His army was too powerful, to, and Egypt was not going to go up against the army of Babylon. All right, so we put the whole picture together. We have in this siege of 588 actually two aspects going on. The international politics of uh, Judah rebelling against Babylon, which is the king of the world at this time. At the same time, Judah attempting to make an alliance with Egypt and that alliance being aborted when the Egyptians realize that they can't take on the Babylonian army, even though the Babylonian army is taking on the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. Do you have any questions about the broad political picture here? Uh, What is happening? There's a political treachery. Zedekiah is uh, betraying his uh, treaty and his agreement uh, with uh, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, And Egypt uh, is realizing that when it enters into this agreement, it does not have the strength to sustain that alliance. And so they withdraw. In other words, they betray their own ally by retreating. Scott? So Egypt goes up initially to support Jerusalem. Correct. And they they probably do not get across uh, the the Brook of Egypt, which is the southern boundary of Egypt. They probably uh, don't get even into the uh, lower uh, valley of uh, Hebron and so on. So when the Babylonians hear about it, they leave Jerusalem and they go to meet the Egyptians. They lift the siege. Now, that doesn't mean he withdrew his army entirely, but he took enough of his army that he can lift the siege, leave the perimeter. He'd already built a wall of siege around Jerusalem. He left enough to man that. He made sure that he already had them starving out because he had shut all access to the city. As we'll note in a couple of other passages, they're beginning to starve uh, uh, shortly after the siege is established. And then he takes the bulk of his army, marches down towards the Brook of Egypt, south towards the border of Egypt, and and he drives away the Egyptians who probably retreated. There's probably no battle uh, engaged between those two forces because once Hophra saw what was coming at him, he just simply turned tail and went back across the Suez Canal, across the Sinai and across the Suez Canal. And Nebuchadnezzar, he turns around and goes back and continues the siege of Jerusalem until he subjugates the city entirely and burns it to the ground. Okay? All right, now, back to chapter uh, 21, the first verse. And the other members of this envoy or this delegation from Zedekiah to Jeremiah the prophet. In verse 1, we read of Pasher ben Melchiah. What does the word ben mean in Hebrew? Son of. Very good. So it's translated son of Melchiah uh, there in your text. And is this the same pasture that we had in chapter 20? Well, let's turn back to chapter 20 a moment because we do have the same name spelled the same way. And in chapter 20, we have a pasture who is Ben what? Anyone? Okay, so they are not the same. Well, what about this Pasher ben Malchiah? If you turn over to chapter 38 of Jeremiah, verse 1 and 4, 
we find this man named again. Now in verse 1, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and Yakul, the son of Shalamiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was speaking to all the people, saying, and now down to verse 4, if somebody would read that for us. How about you, Kay? You haven't said anything tonight. You've been very quiet after you returned from Grand Rapids. And the officials said to the king, Now let this man be put to death. And the What man are they talking about who should be put to death? Jeremiah, correct. And who is part of this group wanting to put Jeremiah to death? Pasher, yes. Pasher ben Malchiah. So we understand that Pasher who appears for the first, this Pasher who appears for the first time in chapter 21 has an ominous future role in the career of Jeremiah. He will be part of an entourage which will seek in chapter 38 to kill Jeremiah. Now back to chapter 21 and the second figure who is part of this Delegation, fellow named Zephaniah, the priest. Is this the prophet Zephaniah? Do you know that there's a book in the Old Testament called Zephaniah? Is this Zephaniah in Jeremiah 21.1? Is this the prophet Jeremiah? Well, you say, of course he can't be the prophet Jeremiah because he's called a what here? He called a priest. Well... Jeremiah is a prophet. What line did he come from? Line of priest. So you could be a priest and a prophet. Jeremiah was. So Zephaniah could be a priest and a prophet too, right? Well, that means we better look at Zephaniah. All right, Zephaniah 1 1. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. There you go. It's time to review your memorization of the books of the Old Testament. All right. Who has Zephaniah 1-1? Robert? Now the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi. Cushai. Cushai, okay. The son of Yedaliah. Good. The son of Amariah, Mm -hmm. the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. All right, now notice what days this man appears. Back to you, Robert. What days? It would be the... Days of Zephaniah. No, the days of what? Right there at the end of the first verse. Okay. Ammon, king of Judah, yeah. Yeah, Ammon's son. Okay. Put it down here. You see it there, Robert, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon. So 
The word of the Lord comes to Zephaniah in the days of Josiah. <clears throat> Is that the days of Zedekiah? No, <clears throat> not the days of Zedekiah. So <clears throat> the introduction here to the book of Zephaniah dates him to <clears throat> be a contemporary of Jeremiah, doesn't it? Because Jeremiah prophesies in the days of Josiah, doesn't he? And the class said, yes, he does. And nod to everybody nodded their heads and said, yes, he does. <clears throat> in fact, he begins in the days of Josiah. He's called in the days of Josiah. <clears throat> His call is in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. <clears throat> All right. But notice that there's no extension beyond the days of Josiah for this Zephaniah, this prophet Zephaniah which means that he is probably dead before Josiah is dead or he has ceased his activity before Josiah dies in 609. Therefore, this Zephaniah, the prophet, the canonical prophet, is not the Zephaniah, son of Maaseiah in Jeremiah 21, verse 1. Could be the same name as Messiah sometimes. Uh, there's no further reflection on that. The other interesting thing here is he's descended from King Hezekiah. And that would put him outside the possibility of being this Zephaniah and Jeremiah as well. All right, now what do we learn about this Zephaniah? First of all, let's turn to Jeremiah 52, verse 24, and let's take a look at his role. Jeremiah 52, verse 24, the first person that has it, please read it out. So the captain of the guard took Jeremiah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, with the three officers of the temple. So what role does Zephaniah have? This Zephaniah. According to that text, Ben, he is the what? He's the second priest. He's the second to the high priest. The high priest is named there as Saraya. All right. So we know that this Zephaniah, son of Maaseiah, is the second priest in Jerusalem. In chapter 29, verses 25 and 26, I'm not going to have you read it out. It's a description of him being involved in a plot or an intrigue which features Jeremiah, but his role in this intrigue or this plot is not clear from the text. It could be nefarious. It could be somewhat neutral. However, in Jeremiah 52, verse 24, uh, what did we note? Did I skip over it too fast there? Well, let's go back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 18. Well, it actually would have been in uh, 2 Kings and Jeremiah 52. But if you're back to 2 Kings uh, 25, <clears throat> verse 21. Anybody have it? 2 Kings 25, 21. <clears throat> The king of Babylon struck him down and put him to death at Lidlock in the land of Hades. So Judah was led away into exile from his 
Who did he strike down and put to death? Notice verse 18. Zephaniah. Zephaniah. So Zephaniah is executed by Nebuchadnezzar at the after the collapse of the city of Jerusalem. He appears one more time. Uh, you may make a note of it in Jeremiah 37, verse 3. He is part of a delegation to Jeremiah from Zedekiah once again, a second delegation in that 37th chapter. <clears throat> All right, so we have a number of characters in this opening verse of Jeremiah 21, the character of the king, but more interestingly, the character of the second priest in Jerusalem, Zephaniah, and an individual uh, who is a plotter of Jeremiah's death, or at least one who intends to be part of a plot to kill Jeremiah. Now, that should give us enough clue about the character of the individuals, but let's turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36, and let's... Read what the inspired text says about the character of these individuals. Second Chronicles 36, verse 14. This incidentally, if you'll notice, verse 11 of chapter 36 of Second Chronicles is describing the reign of King Zedekiah. And in verse 14, whoever has it, go ahead and read. Furthermore, all the nations of the priests and the people became, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. All right, now let's notice what the writer says. All of the priests and the officials of the priests were unfaithful, meaning what? Unfaithful to what? To God and what else? To their calling as priests. To their calling, very good. How do you know that they're unfaithful to their calling? What are these abominations of the nations? Pardon? They defiled the temple. They defiled the temple. How? What are these abominations? The false gods. The false gods. The false gods. So they are practicing what? Idolatry. They're idolaters. Here they are officiating as priests in the temple of God, and they're idolaters. They're bowing down before idols. What idol did they bring into the temple of Jerusalem? Baal. They brought Baal into the temple of Jerusalem. And when you bring Baal into the temple of Jerusalem, you bring the worship of Baal into the temple of Jerusalem, don't you? And how do you worship Baal? Prostitution. Sexual prostitution. That is correct. Sacred prostitution. So this is the defilement that these priests were bringing into the house of the Lord. It's like bringing practicing prostitutes into your local OPC. And you're the one that's endorsing it because you're the pastor. That's exactly what was going on in the temple of Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah. So that the character of Zephaniah, the character probably of Pasher as one of the officials, <coughs> And the character of the king Zedekiah is the character of people who are wicked idolaters and immoral people promoting a desecration of the house of God by promoting idolatry in the very temple of the Lord. And the most despicable of idolatries actually paid sacred prostitution. It just doesn't occur in political circles these days, does it? In any event... 
notice that we are talking about an element of the culture at the highest levels. Political, governmental, economic, social, religious, cultural, which is corrupt, defiled, and without conscience, defying the word of the living God. And God says, there will come a day when you will reap what you have sowed. All right, so the character then of this nation as it approaches the moment of its destruction is not the character of an innocent bunch of righteous people running around who are just being oppressed by a nasty Babylonian king. This is a country, this is a nation in which its leadership is corrupt and immoral to the core. And God has given them chance after chance. He gave them two chances before with Nebuchadnezzar. And now it's as if God and Nebuchadnezzar have the same song, the third time's a charm. Let us not have an idealized or romanticized view of Judah and Jerusalem in the last days, in fact, in the last 40 years of its existence. It is a nation which is in decline. It is in decline because of the corruption at the highest levels of its society. At every echelon of that society, there is moral degeneration, there is spiritual rebellion, and there is the desire to play political footsie games with international power brokers. Remember that when you read your Bible. You can take your break. All right, if we can uh, gather once again, we're now prepared to look at verse 2 in a little more detail. Now, my outline asks, what's the relationship of verse 2 to chapter 20, verse 4? So if we turn back a chapter to the fourth verse of chapter 20, you will notice that... God says that the king of Babylon is going to bring his sword upon the nation of Judah. That is the first mention in the book of Jeremiah of the king of the nation which is going to bring the destruction upon the kingdom of David. In chapter 21, verse 2, the name of the king of Babylon is mentioned for the first time. It's interesting that it takes Jeremiah 20 chapters to reveal the name of the nation, its king, in chapter 20, and then in chapter 21, the name of the king of that nation. But this is the first time that we read the name of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Jeremiah. Now, the embassy pleads with Jeremiah to ask from the Lord on behalf of the king and the nation whether he will deal with us according to his wonderful acts. 
What are these wonderful acts? First of all, what are they thinking of? What would you call a wonderful act? Perhaps your Bible has a marginal note. Miracles. Yes, miracle. There is a note in some version there referring to uh, God remembering his miraculous acts. Now, they're remembering a miraculous act. What miraculous act might they be remembering? All right, let's turn back to 2 Kings 19. This is also referred to in Isaiah 36, which places Isaiah as a contemporary of this event in 2 Kings 19 and should help you remember how to put Isaiah in his place in history. So I know the book of Isaiah. I know the book of Isaiah goes hand in hand with XYZ. And here we're going to take a look at some of the XYZ verses 35 and 36 of 2 Kings 19. And whoever has it first, please read it out. That night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib came in Syria, broke camp, and withdrew and returned to Negev and stayed there. To Nineveh. Okay. Now, uh, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 tells you whose days this are, this is. Whose days is it? Go ahead as you look down there, Ben. Who are these? Who, who, who is? Days of King Hezekiah. All right, so Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, has come up against Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah. And who is a prophet contemporary with Hezekiah? Christina? Isaiah. Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah and Hezekiah go together. And Sennacherib's invasion of Jerusalem in the year, we can date this from the Assyrian Chronicles 701 B.C., and God miraculously spares the city by slaying in one night 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So back to chapter 21, verse 2. The delegation from Zedekiah is saying, how about an instant replay? All right, not only Assyrians, but Babylonians. How about a miracle to get rid of the Babylonian army? We remember the mighty acts of, of, of old or the miraculous deliverance of old. You see, these are rice Christians. They just want they just want the good miraculous things. They don't want uh, anything that goes along with it. They want to be relieved of their distress. They're not interested in the God of the relief itself. Now, there's one passage in uh, Jeremiah 10:21 which we need to look at for a moment because it sets a context for part of, part of the discussion of this chapter. This 21st chapter, going back to verse 21 of chapter 10 and the first person that has it, would they please read it out? For the shepherds have become stupid and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Who are the shepherds? Who are these people? They are not the priests. Who are the shepherds who take care of the flock that is going to be scattered? The leaders. The leaders. What leaders? I would say kings. The kings, exactly. The king, this is a title for the royal house. Notice we're talking to the royal house. 
in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 21. And we're also talking to the royal king in verse 1 and in verse 3. Uh, so the shepherds here who are stupid, and incidentally, stupid here is not an insult. Stupid here refers to the fact that they are foolish. They are foolish. Why are they foolish? Because they're courting their own disaster. That's why. So this embassy is coming with this appeal for miraculous deliverance when, in fact, they're fools because they won't do the essential thing, namely repent of their idolatry and abominable moral practices so as to avoid the wrath of God. These are foolish shepherds. Comment? Even further on in the story, Zedekiah talks with Jeremiah 101, and he tells him yet again, surrender or you're going to be killed. Yes, so uh, as Ben's projecting down the road, Jeremiah is going to encourage Zedekiah to surrender in order to save his life and the life of the city, and Zedekiah is foolishly going to trust what? His alliance with Egypt. I'm going to go up against the king of the world. I'm going to go up against this army that has already surrounded this city twice before and already carried off captives twice before and already looted the temple at least once before, maybe twice before. I'm going to stand against him. What kind of a fool gets into a position of government like that? thinking that he can stand up against the power that is determined to destroy him and play games with it. I don't grab it. I don't don't understand it. I don't comprehend it. I begin to think it's really stupid. (laughs) All right, God says in verse 3, no miracle. God says in verse 3 and verse 4 and following, no miracle, destruction is going to come, which is the natural result of corruption, deceit, and foolishness. It is the natural result of corruption and deceit and foolhardy stupidity. Destruction will come where those Vices dominate, where those derelictions of moral character prevail. Destruction is inevitable. Look at the record of history. Every mighty nation and empire has been brought down from within, not from without. What is rotten, not in Denmark, but what is rotten in Judah and Jerusalem is the rotten hearts and souls of the people that run the ship. Sooner or later, destruction will come. Now, in verse 4, we begin to note a pattern that recurs throughout the rest of this chapter. Notice the omnipresent I. I am about to turn back. I myself shall war. I shall strike down. I shall give over. I shall set before. I have set my face. I, 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 I. It's the omnipresent, omnipotent I. God is active. 
All the way through the rest of this chapter, God acts. And what does he act to do? He acts not to intervene. He acts to passively allow the wages of sin to fall upon this nation, upon this city, and upon this culture. He positively acts to do nothing. But that is his acting. It is a negative, passive act on his part, but it is a positive, negative act. He positively determines to be passive and let immoral nature take its course. In verse 4, he says, I'm sorry, in verse 5, he says that I myself will war against you. He also lists that in verse 4. In other words, this is going to be a holy war in reverse. Remember, God had brought holy war in defense of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And he had gone to war for them when they went through the Transjordanian regions and also when they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land under Joshua. But here he is going to reverse that holy war. He is going to fight against Judah. He's not going to fight for Judah. He is going to fight with the enemies of Judah. He is not going to fight with Judah. Judah is his enemy and he is going to fight against her. Now, notice in verse four, he says he's going to gather. He's going to turn back, first of all, the weapons of the Judeans upon themselves. And then in that last phrase, he's going to gather them into the center of this city. What's he going to gather into the center of the city? Very good, Robert. Yes, he's going to. It's not the weapons that he's going to gather into the center of the city. How do we know it's Nebuchadnezzar's army? Let's take a look at Jeremiah 39, particularly the third verse of Jeremiah 39. I'll not ask you to read it out uh, because of the uh, awkwardness of the Babylonian names, but nonetheless, just scan that third verse as you find it. And you will notice that the context in verse 1 is that Jerusalem was captured in the 11th year, verse 2 of Zedekiah. The city wall was breached. Keep in mind that for two years, from the ninth year, from 588 to 586, they had a siege wall around Jerusalem. The Babylonians built a siege wall around it. And then in verse 2, they breached the wall of Jerusalem on, in the 11th year, that is in 586, they penetrated through the wall to get inside the city. They had starved them into submission. They had starved them into weakness. They had starved them into death and pestilence and plague. And now they breached the wall. And then inside the wall, the officials of the king of Babylon and all the rest of the officials sat down at the middle gate. That sit down at the middle gate of Jerusalem. So in other words, what Jeremiah predicts, in, what God predicts in chapter 21, namely that they would gather within the center of the city, is fulfilled in verse 3 of Jeremiah 39. Now in verse 5, as we indicated, uh, God becomes the enemy of Judah, which is the exact opposite of Zedekiah's request. 
He had asked that the Lord might uh, do something on their behalf, deal with us according to his miraculous deeds. But God says he is, in fact, going to go to war against Judah. And notice what he uh, what language he uses there in that fifth verse. He's going to war against them with an outstretched and mighty outstretched hand and mighty arm. Where does that language come from? Let's begin with Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. This is just one place of many places. There are almost half a dozen places in the Old Testament where this phrase is used. But let's take a look at Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. And when someone has it, first of all, I want you to identify what you are reading and then read the verse. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. First of all, tell me what you are reading, and then read the verse. Ten Commandments. You are reading the Ten Commandments, because you are reading from Deuteronomos. And Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, means the second giving of the law. Nomos, law, Deuteros, second, second law. Go ahead, Ben. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that... The Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Notice the phrase that God brought them out of Egypt by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. In other words, the exodus was by means of God's almighty hand and arm. And will you observe that this is one of the differences between the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5? Here, the Sabbath day is to be observed as a remembrance of the grace of God in bringing them out of bondage, out of Egypt. That was not a meritorious act on the part of Israel. That was a gracious, unmerited act on the part of God. It was an almighty act of God. Is an almighty act of God ever a merited act on the part of the recipients and the part of mankind? It could never be a merited act on the part of them because it would not be an almighty act. There is no human that is capable of an almighty meritorious act. And the Sabbath is a day to remember that. The Sabbath is still a day to remember that because you've got a better exodus to remember. You've got a better mighty arm and outstretched hand that redeemed you. You have a day of resurrection to remember. You have a day when God's almighty hand and outstretched arm raised up his son from the death of the grave and made him alive again and has said that you have been made alive in him. You have been made alive together with him. You've been made alive for a Sabbath of eternity in him. No, Sabbath hasn't been attenuated or reduced. The Sabbath has been heightened because the Son of God has made the first day of the week the Sabbath of the end of the age. You can still read this passage. You can still read the commandment and take it to your own heart and life because this day, the Sabbath, is a testimony to the mighty grace of God in Christ Jesus, our risen Sabbath Lord. Well, 
The anti-Exodus motif here is that God in Jeremiah 21.5 is going to turn back that Exodus. He's going to reverse his mighty hand and outstretched arm in turning Israel or Judah back into captivity, to the Babylonian captivity. So this is an anti-Exodus, a reverse Exodus paradigm, which leads us to wonder, does Jeremiah have a reversal of the reversal? Does he have an anti-anti-Exodus? Does he have a new exodus? Does he have an eschatological exodus? Well, you'll have to keep coming back to see. You'll have to see as we work through the rest of the book. Well, I invite you to come back to see. All right. Verse 7. If you have any questions, please uh, raise them. Verse 7. Notice that... God addresses the servants of the king of Judah and the people. Now, who are the servants of the king of Judah? They are, first of all, the royal officials who are part of his court. They are his advisors in matters political, economic, and cultural. They would also be uh, priestly liaisons involved. In other words, this is the close group of leaders, political, economic, social, cultural, and religious. These are the servants of the king. But notice, in addition to the servants of the king, that is this echelon of leadership, are the people themselves. And in verse 8, Jeremiah will address the people. He is addressing the king. He is addressing the servants of the king. He is addressing all elements of this society, every aspect of this culture, every human element in this culture is being addressed by the prophet. Now, in that seventh verse, God says that Nebuchadnezzar is going to strike down those who died with the edge of the sword. At least that's how most Translations render that phrase. Does anybody's Bible say anything different than the edge of the sword in verse 7? Famine. Pardon? Sword and famine. No, he's going to strike them with the edge of the sword. Sword and famine is in the beginning of the verse, yes, but it's toward the end of the verse, Ben notices. Does your version say he's going to strike them with the edge of the sword? He'll put them to the sword. To the sword. Okay. All right. The image edge of the sword suggests, of course, the edge of the blade of the sword. It's a mistranslation. This uh, phrase literally in Hebrew reads, with the mouth of the sword. He will strike them with the mouth of the sword. Now, why is that phrase there? Well, because... From the archaeologist's spade, we have uncovered ancient Near Eastern swords from this period and before, in which the blade of the sword is the tongue of a lion or the tongue of a dragon. And the handle of the sword is the face of the dragon or the face of the lion which means that you have a stylized sword whose hilt or handle 
is designed like the face of a lion or the face of a dragon, and the blade of the sword comes out of the lion or the dragon's mouth. He will slay them with the tongue of the lion. He will slay them with the tongue of the dragon. And so the image is perfectly appropriate to what we know from the archaeological record. Many swords shaped in this fashion, namely that the, the business end of the weapon is like the tongue of the beast who is designed into the handle. All right, verses 8 and following are virtually duplicated in chapter 38, verses 2 and 3. You can compare those at your leisure. But in verse 9, we're reminded of what Zedekiah might remember. He who goes out to the Chaldeans... What might Zedekiah remember about who went out to the Chaldeans? Jehoiakim and his mother. In what year? No. That's Daniel. 597. Okay. Now, remembering that others went out to the Babylonians and survived, perhaps Zedekiah would be wise enough to do the same, that he might, in fact, spare the city as well. And whoever does, he will have his life as booty. What does this phrase, have his life as booty, mean? What's booty? What pirates lose, right? So, what are you going to have your life as booty? Well, let's take a look at two passages at the end of the book where we get some light on what it means. It's really not very difficult. Chapter 39, verse 18. You'll notice in verse 15, or actually verse 16, Jeremiah speaks these words to Abed-Melech. Who is Abed-Melech? You know enough about the story of Jeremiah to identify Abed-Melech. What's that word Abed-Melech mean? What's Abed mean in, uh, that's a Hebrew word, what's Abed mean in English? God. Servant. Servant means servant. What's Melech mean? God. Servant of the king. Okay, so the name means servant of the king. And this Servant of the king was actually Ethiopian or Cushite. And what did he do? What does he do in this story? What does Abed-Melech do? How does he interface with Jeremiah? Maki, do you know how Abed-Melech interfaces with Jeremiah? Uh, no. no, okay, that's fine. Ben? He was the guy who took Jeremiah out of the city. That's right. No, no not out of the city, out of the... Out of the, the, the court of the... Oh, no, out of the cistern. Out of the cistern. And how did he do that? With rags? Yeah, he wrapped rags around his arm and he pulled him up out of the muck and mire of that cistern into which Jeremiah had sunk when he'd been thrown down there. Yes, he did. He asked Zedekiah if he could rescue Jeremiah. So Ebed Melech here 
is a positive figure. He's a good guy in the story of Jeremiah because he rescues him. And notice that in verse 18, that you, I will certainly rescue you, says the Lord, and you will have your life, your own life as booty because you trusted in me. All right, so what does have your life as booty mean? It means that you'll survive. It means that you will live beyond the destruction of the city. And notice that Evan Melech is commended because he believed in God. Here is this Ethiopian, here's this Cushite, who not only recognize, rec, rescues Jeremiah, he also is rescued. He rescued himself from unbelief. And he becomes a believer in the Lord God and in the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. Chapter 45, verse 5, tells us about another good guy in the book of Jeremiah, another one who was promised at the end of the destruction he will have his life as booty, and that is Barak. Barak... How does Barak figure into the story of Jeremiah? Evan Melech rescues him. What does Barak do? Yes, he's a scribe. He copies down Jeremiah's scroll. And what does Jehoiakim do with Jeremiah's scroll? He cuts it up. He cuts it up and then does what with it? He burns it. He cuts it up and he slices it. This this column from column, he slices it and uh, feeds it into the fire. All right, so uh, uh, that's another reason why we don't like Jehoiakim. (laughs) Another reason why we do like Barak. And so Barak had to rewrite the scroll at Jeremiah's dictation. All right. So Barak receives the same promise that he will receive his life as booty, that is, he will have his life preserved. In verse 10, God sets before the face of the city harm and good. It is God's two ways, hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the two ways here in Jeremiah's day are the way of life, which is the way of surrender, and the way of death, which is the way of fighting against Nebuchadnezzar. Which brings us to the address in verse 11, to the household of the king of Judah, to the whole court of the house of the king of Judah, to all of the servants that we noted in verse 7, the royal officials and the courtiers, what we may call the cabinet of the king, They are addressed in verses 12 to 14, and we begin with the paradigm of 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. Let's go back to that passage and read it because it is an important text for what Jeremiah is describing here. 2 Samuel 8, verse 15, and the first person who has it, will it please read it out? David administered justice and righteousness. Turning back to Jeremiah 21, what does verse 12 say? O house of David, administer justice every morning. So the paradigm for measuring the administration of justice and righteousness is David himself. All the way back in the 11th century B.C., 
Here we are in the 6th century B.C., nearly 500 years later, and the appeal to the house of David is to stand in the path that David stood in, to be a mirror reflection of what David was as a royal administer, administrator of justice and righteousness. <clears throat> well, what is justice? What is it to administer justice? It is to administer equity. Justice is impartiality. Playing no favorites with respect to the law of God. It is a principle of natural justice. We all have an innate sense of it. That is what a sense of equitable or proper right and wrong is. Whether or not we act upon it is another matter, but we have a sense of fairness and impartiality. Just go out on a children's playground and you'll see it in operation very quickly. Ben. In, in Daniel, I guess it's probably right, right after this, but King Nebuchadnezzar himself is delivered the same command by Daniel. Yes. He said, it, Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness uh, uh, by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that your prophecy will continue. What chapter are you reading from? Four? Prosperity will continue. Yeah, four. Nebuchadnezzar's prayer in response to it. Yes, thank you for observing that. Because, you see, this principle is not peculiar only to religious kings or only to uh, Christian kings like David. It is peculiar to all kings. It is the requirement of all political leaders that they administer equity, justice in terms of impartiality, not playing favorites with respect to whatever principle of law they maintain, but above all, the principle of natural law, which is inherent in, uh, in mankind in general. <clears throat> all right, then righteousness on top of justice, <clears throat> if justice is equity and impartiality, what is righteousness? It is rightly protecting the oppressed. It is rightly protecting the oppressed. And that means that the oppressor must be punished. He must be restrained. He must be held back from his act of oppression. If it requires punishment to so do, then that will maintain righteousness. You cannot maintain righteousness if you allow oppressors to oppress. If you allow them to get away with oppression, you are not promoting righteousness if you operate on that premise. And you are not promoting justice if you promote partiality. That is, if you play favorites in who you give some uh, relief to and others not, or if you give certain favors to some and you withhold those favors from others, that is not justice. Well, in chapter 22, verses 1 to 3, you'll see a repetition of this very uh, uh, clause. The verses 12 to 14 are once again almost repeated in uh, verses 1 to 3 of the next chapter. And here we notice that God has commissioned the house of David to administer justice in chapter 21. And in chapter 22, God executes his wrath for the failure of the house of David to heed the commission which God had placed before them.
Now, I put the word mourning down there from verse 12 just to alert you to the fact that this is the place where justice was to be administered. And in chapter 38, verse 7, you will notice that it is at the gate. Justice was publicly performed in the morning at the gate. In fact, Zedekiah is sitting at the gate in chapter 38, verse 7. And we're reminded of the story of Ruth and Boaz when Boaz told Ruth that if she would remain until the morning, laying at his feet, having made her petition that he would pay the kinsman redeemer for her, if she would remain to the morning, he would settle the matter for her, and then the next chapter, chapter 4, he goes up to the gate in the morning. So the gate is the place where the elders or where those who exercise judgment will sit to make decisions, and that's what's behind this phrase, administer justice every morning in the public place of justice in the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 13 I am against you, O valley dweller. Why does God say, O valley dweller? Because Jerusalem is surrounded by two valleys. On the west, the valley of Hinnom, which was where they burned their children in the fire. It was also a garbage dump. It was always on fire. It was always burning, which gave the image of Gehenna to the New Testament or the image of Hades, a place where the fire never goes out. Also, the valley of Kidron, which is on the east side of Jerusalem. Jesus crossed over the valley of Kidron to go up the Mount of Olives on the night on which he was betrayed. So this is the reference to valley dwellers. That is, they dwell, many of the people of Jerusalem dwell in these valleys. Verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 13, uh, your men will say, who will come down against us? Notice we have another uh, 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 speaker here. It's actually the men of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a rhetorical question. And what's the answer to the rhetorical question? Loretta, you're our expert on rhetorical questions. What's the answer to this one? Who will come down against us? Will somebody come down against them? God himself, yes. God is the, is the rhetor here. He is the one who will give justice to the house that, to the, to the nation that the house of David has denied. All right, in conclusion. The eschatological justice and righteousness of God, which is messianically projected, is found in chapter 23 of this wonderful book of Jeremiah. And if you'll turn ahead to chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, notice what the prophet projects into the eschatological future. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as a king and act wisely. He will not be a stupid fool, and do justice and righteousness in the land. Here is an eschatological David who will do what the house of David in the days of Jeremiah refused to do. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land, and he will reign as a righteous and wise king. He will be great David's greater son. And what has failed in the days of Zedekiah? What has failed in the days of the kingdom of Judah, 
will be perfected and completed in the kingdom which this Davidide will bring, a kingdom of justice and righteousness forever and ever. Isaiah predicts the same thing in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and in chapter 11, verses 1 to 5, those precious Christmas passages that you know from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, Isaiah rather, remember that those prophecies are not just about a child. They are not just against about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. They are about a man who will come to judge righteously and to administer justly. He has come. And he has granted you entrance into a kingdom where there is no injustice and no unrighteousness. Because his very justice and righteousness has been applied to you by grace through faith. Did you not pause to remember that yesterday or were you too busy with ghosts and goblins? Did you forget why that day is precious to your heart? Or were you too busy with costumes and candy? Did you remember that yesterday that righteousness which God obtained for you in Christ Jesus was given to you anew as a result of a church door in Wittenberg, Germany? Did you remember that yesterday? Well, remember it tonight before you go to sleep. And you can have fun with Halloween if you wish, but don't forget the Reformation Day which changed Halloween and made it a day of freedom through the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone and the justice of God administered to his son in your place so that you won't have to endure that wrath in the last day. You belong to a greater kingdom than a Halloween trick-or-treat party. Keep it in mind as you think of the righteousness of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and of the kingdom of the eschatological son of David, which has been opened wide to you, as wide as the gate of heaven itself. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in the promise of the righteousness of your Son, who is the descendant of the line of David, who is a king eternal in the heavens and seated at your right hand, who administers to us grace and mercy and peace from the reservoirs of eternity and deals with us as a just and merciful Savior. We thank you, Lord, that we stand in the end of the ages in the fullness of the success and completion of this miserable failure of the household of David in the days of Zedekiah and Jeremiah we will hold fast to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, to his righteousness, to his 
equitable justice and to his wonderful love in his life, death, and resurrection for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have had some questions before we closed in prayer. If so, I'll be happy to address those. Bob? I, I like how you define it, righteousness. Uh, it seems to fit with context. Is there anything specifically that you found within the text within Jeremiah that led you to that way of describing it? Yeah, there's, there's a, a great deal of this use of this phrase, justice and righteousness, throughout the book. And so what you do is you start to pull the threads of that together and put together this larger picture of what he's describing. And so it, it flows out of how he ex, uh, actually expands upon what that means in one section or another. So you, you have to trace it all the way through, and you just start to gather the little nuggets as you go. Also, that, that reversal ex, exodus motif uh, there, um, very good, obviously. Um, it's, it, but I'm wondering, you know, the, the language where he's going to come at them with his mighty power, we know the Exodus is actually a supernatural, miraculous event. Um, do you see? Do you see anything? I mean, no, you don't see anything miraculous there, do you? Or, or if you do, uh, or do you see some special aspect of God's providence working and executing the curses upon the people, which is, you know, comparable to something miraculous, but not miraculous? Or how do you? How do you do that? Well, uh, we're going to enter an era of. Uh, an era of supernaturalism once again when the new exodus occurs in and through Christ Jesus, who goes down into Egypt, who comes up out of Egypt, who goes through the waters, who goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, who goes up onto the mountain to deliver the Sermon on the Mount. So the new exodus is going to be an era of the supernaturalism that is attendant to the incarnation and appearance of the Son of God. In that, in that regard, it is supernatural and miraculous as he attends that display with his own power to perform miracles and signs which attract attention to it. I'm not thinking of a, a supernatural act in terms of the return from the exile. I'm not thinking of it in terms of a, another uh, <coughs> a, a, a miraculous redemption from Egypt or Babylon or Persia or anything of that sort, if, if uh, that's behind your question. No, I'm Precisely verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 5, I myself will fight against them with an outstretched hand and mighty arm in anger and fury, talking about how he's going to execute wrath upon Israel. Uh, oh, I see. Oh, do, I, do I think that is a miraculous act? No, I don't think so. No, yeah. no. You think he's just, he's just using the language of the miraculous activity of God to deliver Egypt to now how he's going to execute his curses upon Israel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be omnipotent in the sense that it's omnipotent permission of power for the Babylonians to wage this battle. But no, it's not going to be any miraculous power given to the Babylonians to breach the walls of Jerusalem. No, don't think so. Chapter 22 next week.